Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to take a look at some awesome free tokens that you can get from N-World Publishing for Level Up 5e. We're going to take a look at the 2023 NE nominations that are going to be going up at Gen Con. I think that they're going to be the winners are going to be announced at Gen Con in about three weeks or so. One of these is Sword of the Serpentine. One of the RPGs that popped up on this is Sword of the Serpentine by Pelgrim Press. We're going to take a quick look at it. I haven't had time to do a deep dive on it, but we're going to take a quick look at Sword of the Serpentine, which I'm very excited about. Our big topic today is run running cities and what we can do to better run cities in our tabletop fantasy role-playing games. And we're going to cover more questions from the July 2023 Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm your pal, Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in role-playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to the monthly Q&A, a dedicated Discord server, the City of Arches sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of exclusive adventures, and a whole lot more. But most of all they help me put on shows like this to the patrons of sly flourish thank you so much for your outstanding support this week one of the cool things that i found out about is that level up advanced 5e is giving away a whole bunch of tokens for virtual tabletop tokens that are based on the monsters they have in the monsters menagerie you can pick this up at drive through rpg right now for nothing it costs you zero, and it's 170 monster tokens. Monster tokens, with, with things like token stamp and the ability to pull art from the web, it's actually not too hard to build tokens when you need them on the fly, but it is really cool to have an archive of tokens of all of the basic standard monsters that you would expect in any of your 5e games. So even if you're not using Level Up Advanced 5e, these tokens can work just fine for you. You can use these tokens for any of the various versions of 5e that you're running. I, I pulled up a few of these tokens just to show the quality of the art. The art quality is actually really really good so like here's your skeleton here pretty straightforward skeleton but you know not exactly just your typical boring skeleton zombies here is a pit or a, a balor that i grabbed you know i'm not so sure about this flesh guardian guy but again the price is right and i think the tarask is absolutely awesome so there's no reason not to go check them out i like the i like the art style a whole lot the border is very nondescript very very straightforward and you can pick it up in the drive through rpg you can download the zip file i have a little direct off to the side where I just have my A5V tokens. And so if I need any tokens, I can go and grab them there. But who, you know, how, how do you, how do you beat a, a zero, a price of zero for 170 monster tokens for level up advanced 5e? So check that out. There's also, I just, I'm just seeing this, but there's also Holdenshire NPC tokens. I'll have to go pick this up as well. Eh, I'm not quite sure about the quality of the artwork on that, but if you need a bunch of NPC tokens, that's probably a good way to go. And again, cost zero. So why not? But I think these level up advanced 5e monster tokens are definitely awesome. So you can find those in the show notes below. Check them out and pick them up for your various virtual tabletop for use in your various tabletops. So the 2023 any nominations were announced, I think, a week or so ago. I didn't I didn't I don't know if I picked up on it right away. One of the things that's really good for any nominations is it's a great way to see what kind of other RPG products have come out that are notable over the past year. I think this is probably the most valuable thing that the any nominations does is that it gives us GMs a look at all of the different kinds of products that have come out and the ones that caught the eye of the judges of the Ennies. The way that the Ennies work is that a bunch of judges are selected. They go through all the nominations that are submitted to them by publishers, and then they pick the ones that are going to be up for 
for voting and then the vote is an open vote anybody can go and vote on the ennies you can you can vote yourself on all of these different products and help highlight the ones that you want to win being nominated on its own is already really good and again it is really handy to have a website where you can go oh these are the things that came out and i'll give an example of one product that i kind of missed where i'm like oh i had been following this product for a long time and i missed that it had come out. And then I saw it came out and I went and I bought it. So I was really excited. We're going to talk about that. That's sort of the serpentine. So yeah, lots of different ones that you can go through here. Some of which I recognize, some of which I don't. I'm not going to like click through on all of these, but there's a few of these. I was like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. Dungeons of Drakenheim won a spotlight award. So the judges themselves get to spotlight a particular product. It's sort of an automatic win. Like you don't need, this one is one that isn't voted on. I think the judges spotlights are saying, hey, this is a product that we as judges thought were really outstanding and we're highlighting it. And Dungeons of Drakenheim by Ghostfire Gaming got picked out as one of the spotlights. And I I agree with that. I think Dungeons of Drakenheim is a really, really good published adventure. I've described it as a book for GMs by GMs. Something I've just talked a lot about in another video was how important it is to design products that are built for GMs to run them at the table and how hard that is to do and how many products don't actually manage to do that particularly well. Is being a good referenceable product that you can run that gives you lots of ideas, lots of hooks, lots of things you can run with to build your own adventures. Dungeons of Drakenheim Drakenheim definitely does. So I'm glad it's getting good recognition. I, you know, it doesn't need a ton of recognition because it did tremendously well in its Kickstarter. It's a very popular product, but it's still really good to see it, to see it highlighted. Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel by Wizards of the Coast is, I think, the only Wizards of the Coast product that's up for any of the Ennies. And, but it, because of its, the, the focus of the adventure on representation of all different kinds of people and cultures, written by a bunch of writers that represent all different kinds of people and cultures, is clearly a, a very good, a good product and a good product that helps bring more people into the hobby, which is outstanding. So I'm glad to see it up there as, as best adventure. I haven't gone, gone through all of these other adventures, Broken Tales, Unexpected wedding invitation seasons of mystery for the vessen rpg i don't even know that rpg but lots of different things and then you get like these digital accessories and i was like oh these are kind of cool and dd dice i hadn't heard of before but dd dice is a really neat tool that lets you roll dice without any kind of account so you can just share a url with your group and say we're all going to roll dice in here and people can people can follow along and you can roll your dice and see what kind of answer you get so it's a really good way to let's see can you roll like 3d6 oh i'm rolling 76 oh 76 right 22 so you know a nice alternative to like the die rollers you see in a lot of vtt's and i love this idea of focused tools that do one thing like Albert Rodeo, right? Albert Rodeo focuses on one thing. Now, Albert Rodeo has a dice roller that is built into it too. You can pop it on the side. So you probably don't need this with Albert Rodeo. But let's say you've got a game where you're not using Albert Rodeo, but you still want a way for all of us to kind of share the dice that we're rolling and see how it goes. This is a good, this, this is a cool tool that does it and doesn't require any account to log in. That's really key. That idea that like you can give it to your players and they don't have to sign up for something. They don't have to get through a whole form that asks for their name and address and all that crap. They can just hit a URL and start rolling dice. I think that's really cool. I did not know about that until I saw it here on the Annie's website. So it's really kind of cool. The system zero, the session zero system I've heard about. I haven't had a chance to check it out. I, I thought this was interesting. Q Workshop, their Witcher hybrid dice set got picked for one of them. A lot of different interesting products that are coming out. Then you get a lot of the different sort of typical standard awards for things like best cover, best interior, best design, everything like that. And this is where I started looking through it and I went, oh, sort of the Serpentine by Pelgrim Press. I know about that one. And, and I didn't realize it was out it's actually taken i think a while for it to come out but it's finally came out and when i saw that it was available and i was like oh i gotta go pick that up and i went and i bought it so we're going to talk a little bit about swords of the serpentine in a bit 
but I'm glad to hear that it was out. So again, a good good way to kind of see different products that are kind of capturing the eye. It's a good way to see independent products too, because as you saw, like I don't think, I think Pathfinder, I don't know if it has much on here, if anything, and Wizards of the Coast only has like one product. So the big publishers really don't have a lot. And then lots of smaller publishers. I mean, not pseudo kind of small. Cobalt Press is pretty big. Free League Publishing is pretty big. So there's other ones, but you're, the nice thing is it's sort of scraping by the stuff that sort of dominates the conversation and gets the products that we might not have heard of. And then we can click through and, and sort of see. So I would definitely spend some time with these awards and taking a look at them and seeing which ones you think are interesting. It's a great way to know what, what products are out there in the world of RPGs that you may not have heard of. This is a good way to, 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 to get that spotlight and to use that spotlight to help you. Small projects, small products, like small, tiny little products you might not have heard of, like the Avatar Legends role-playing game set, which I think made like $40 million on Kickstarter or something like that. I joke. That's, well, I think it's the only other RPG, the Avatar Legends role-playing game set this is the starter set but the full avatar role-playing game is the only other role-playing game i know of that is regularly at target like if you go to target or walmart or stuff like that dungeons and dragons is there with its box sets and avatar is there with its box sets which is really interesting because it means that the sec i think probably i don't know if this is true because pathfinder is pretty big but the second or third most popular role-playing game is using the power by the apocalypse system which is really pretty neat free best free products are there best game definitely if you want to see like what what games are picking it up what getting people's attention take a look at that i see the blade runner rpg is showing up quite a bit i think i had some friends that played that i haven't i haven't had a chance to try that out best monster and adversary has a whole section here whoever the competitors are for next year better watch out because we're going to try to get forge of foes on this list almost definitely Best online content. You see Elven Tower is up there. I really love Elven Tower, but I think the one that's almost certainly going to be the clear winner is Linda Linda Codega's IO9 RPG reporting. They did they did amazing reporting on the whole OGL fiasco and probably helped ensure that the company really understood the negative impact it was having on the whole RPG community when that went on. So I think that their reporting on the whole OGL thing probably warrants them a any award for the work that they did for RPGs. And let's see, best organized play. Interesting that none of the actual bigger organized play stuff that I know of is there, such as life. Best podcast. I kind of wish I'd put my podcast up there. I didn't, I didn't actually submit it. Now I'm sad. Best production values. Lots of different RPGs here. Warhammer. So, you know, again, big, big set of Warhammer fantasy role-playing has best production values up there. So again, big publishers are there. Blackbirds RPG from Andrews McNeil Publishing is there. Lots of different, lots of different systems, lots of different settings. Dra Draken Hall, the City of Monsters by Pelgrim Press. That is a 13th Age monster or 13th Age area. I think that's really cool. I haven't, I haven't checked that one out. I haven't played 13th Age in a while, so I haven't picked up a lot of 13th Age stuff. But it's kind of neat to see, kind of neat to see what's going on there. Best supplement, uh, interesting barkeep of the barkeep on the Borderlands incantations. Intoxicant. Best writing, Sword of the Serpentine is up for best writing. I know. So Kevin Culp, I had the distinct honor of playing a gumshoe game with Kevin Culp. I don't remember if that was Time Watch. Uh, I think it might have been Time Watch or maybe it was a different gumshoe system with Kevin Culp here in D.C., and it was really fun. So I learned a lot about how gumshoe systems work from, from an expert in it. So I'm, I'm excited to 
see that. And we're going to talk about sort of the Serpentine now. And then product of the year, you know, the big, big list. There's 10 different products that are up for product of the year. If you want to click on anything and like go check them out, I would definitely check that. I hear this Vesane RPG is probably worth taking a look at. So it's good to kind of poke through and be, take a look at like, what are the summaries of these different RPGs and which ones do you think might grab you, which, which one of these products might grab you. So take a look at this. It is linked in the show notes, the any. These are the any nominees for 2023. Great way to see what's going on in the world of tabletop role-playing games. Good way to sort of run a, a, a you know run the log of popularity so that you are seeing some stuff that might get dwarfed by some of the great you know the, the biggest products that are coming out there. But I think it's going to be I think it's going to be pretty cool. I think I think we've got a, a good list good list of stuff. So one of those that caught my attention is Sword of the Serpentine. Swords of the Serpentine is a gumshoe based high fantasy system high fantasy game published by Pelgrane Press written by Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. And if you have not tried a gumshoe system, it's a really interesting system that is built sort of around investigation. So one of the keys is like the gumshoe system. You have these sort of different abilities. In the case of Swords of the Serpentine, you have investigative abilities and general abilities. And if you are essentially like trained in one of the abilities, when you say that you're going to use one of your abilities to accomplish something, you accomplish it. There isn't a check to say like, oh, you failed at that. You can almost think of it like passive checks in D&D or in the style where you have like a passive, you have a passive ability that has sort of a lower floor and your lower floor is always enough to at least succeed because you are trained and experienced in this good, but you can still roll your check or you can still roll your abilities in order to get extra stuff. So it sort of sits at like, there's a base level of information that you're going to be able to get. And then you get extra stuff for the amount of extra energy that you put in. One of the things that's very, very, the gumshoe system is built for investigation. The gumshoe system has been used for, there's certain like Cthulhu based games that it's been used for. It's been used for a game called Time Watch, a game that I have used it for. The, the game that I have played the most with Gumshoe is Knights Black Agents, in which you're sort of like special agents that are hunting down vampires in the supernatural. I was always upset that you couldn't be a vampire in, in, in Knights Black Agents, but c'est la vie. So it really focuses around these, these abilities that you've got in rolling your abilities. It's a single D6 system, which is kind of cool. You can play the whole game with just a single D6. It really gets away from this idea that you need giant piles of special dice. You need, oh, I need at least 20 D6 or I can't possibly operate. One D6 is enough for you to be able to run it. This is kind of interesting. Designer notes, creating house rules. One of the advantages of a long design process is, and they have had a long design process for this, is that we have the chance to select and include rules we consider the most fun. That said, this is now your game and you get to customize it however you like. Play it in a way that is fun. And the GM or players alike, you can change them. You'll find more thoughts on customization in chapter eight in the GM advice section. So the book is of a 400 page book. It's a great big book. It is also an enormous about 400 megabytes in size. The the Sword of the Serpentine main, main book is 374 megabytes. I think the cover, which is up for best cover for any's, is one of the reasons why. Because this version that we're looking at right now is only 25 megabytes. The smaller file size works just as well when you're looking for a book, when you're looking for a book to look on a digital system. I did pick up myself. This is not a review copy. I bought it myself from Pelgrim Press. I bought the PDF version and the physical version. The physical version should be here in a little bit. I haven't gotten the physical version, so I don't know. I don't know what the quality of the physical book is like, but I imagine it's pretty good. Everything I've gotten from Pelgrim Pest has been excellent. So I'm looking forward to that. This actually follows one of the things that I noticed when I was flipping through Swords of the Serpentine. And again, I've only had a chance to just briefly flip through it. I haven't done like this isn't a review. It's just a spotlight. It's just to tell you a little bit about it, show you what's in it. And then you can take a look for yourself and decide, is this something you want to get? And one key that I want to throw up right now is you can actually get a preview of the, the whole book. It is available for free. They have a quick start rules section. I guess this was part of free RPG day, 
but doesn't include all the stuff from free RPG. But right now there is a link directly from Pelgrane where you can get the quick start rules. So if you want to see what this game is like, understand the basics of it, give it a read through before you want to drop your money on it. It's eight pages, but tells you about the, the game, how it works, how you do your abilities. It gives you your list of investigative abilities and things like that. I imagine somewhere there's got to be pre-gen characters that you can use for games like this. But right now it's basically just the quick reference, an eight page quick reference that can tell you what the game is like. It's not going to give you depth of the story. doesn't have a lot of art in it, but it's a way to get a, a, a basic idea of what this is, of what this is like. But one of the things I noticed about the book itself when I was flipping through it is how much it reminded me of the, the style of what 13th Age provides. So one of the things I actually talked to Rob Hainso about this when 13th Age came out and I was like, why did you decide to do one book that has player options, GM advice, monsters, an adventure, a campaign setting. I was like, you took like five books worth of stuff and packed it into one book. And his answer was, well, we're not particularly good business people like we are, like we are RPG designers. And I think he was wrong. I think that is a fantastic business way to do it because it means that people can only buy, only need to buy one book and they can run the entire system. They can run everything. You have all of the stuff you needed for a player. You have all of the stuff you need for the GM. You have all the stuff you need for like monsters. You have locations. You have a starting adventure. You have a setting. Everything is piled in one book. And I think that is a really big sales draw. I think that idea, I know it is for me. If they told me that Sword of the Serpentine had a separate player's guide, a separate monster manual, a separate GM's guide, a separate campaign setting, and a separate adventure, and I had to buy all that stuff, I probably wouldn't have bought it, right? And, and I think that there's really only a handful of companies that can get away with that. I think it's very few companies, and they re you really need to know what they're going to give you that can split their books up into multiple books and expect that you're going to buy them all. We've seen Cobalt Press do it with Tales of the Valiant. Obviously, Wizards of the Coast does it with Dungeons and Dragons. Pathfinder is doing it with, Paizo is doing it with Pathfinder. There's really not that many companies that I think can get away with that. And when you have a game where it's like people don't really know what the game is, they haven't really played it, they haven't really tried it, to then say, hey, you need to buy a bunch of books in order to play it. Now, you can get away with it if you have a good, thick, rich starter set that gives you enough stuff in one product to be able to at least get a good taste for it, run a few adventures, run it, run a few campaigns, and then say, ah, if you want to take this further and you really want it to grow, then you can pick up these other books. Then you can kind of get away with it. But yeah, I think you're also like adding a lot of different products. So I really like that sort of the Serpentine. It seems to be following what 13th Age did. And they're putting everything in that this book has everything you need in order to generate your generate your characters. It's got a whole rule book for how the, the rules of the game, a whole section on how sorcery works because magic in this game runs differently. I haven't I really, again, haven't dug too deep to see exactly how this all works. You know, wealth and lifestyle, gears, you know, gear and equipment and and money and all that kind of stuff adversaries so again your big list of monsters and it has very traditional sort of dnd like monsters as far as i could tell like you, you can see a lot it's got liches and vampires and zombies and you know skeletal skeletal giants shadow demons so clearly a high fantasy a high fantasy base game and then also has a gm advice section and then the city of eversink which is kind of the setting that it looks like this is going to take place in. I, th I can't remember. Did I play a, I think I played a sort of the Serpentine game before in some of its earliest in concept in, in earliest conceptions. And I really, I think I really, I really dug it. One of the big questions is 
how well does an investigative gumshoe style game work in a high fantasy setting? And I think that that was one of the core questions, like, can this work? And I think I recall Kevin Culp talking about it, saying like, well, maybe gumshoe isn't the right system. And then he said, then then we tried it and we found that it works really well. I think I recall an interview that he, where he, he talked about that and he talked about how, you know, because you think about high fantasy, you think a lot about tactical combat and you think about sort of, again, a D&D style game. And then you think of gumshoe and you think more like Call of Cthulhu, investigative sort of games that are going on. And, you know, can that really work? And, and the answer is, yeah, you know, it can work. It can work just fine. So and yeah, so it has this whole, you know, section. So it's got a whole section on the city, which looks like it's almost 100 pages, about 90 pages. And then the world itself, which grows out and looks like it's another, you know, another 20 ish pages, about 15, 16 pages on the world. And then it looks like it has an introductory adventure. So, again, sort of like. 13th age it's got everything in there it's got character options gm options monsters equipment a campaign setting an adventure all in one book so that's something i really i really dig i really like that i like this appendices it's got sort of the serpentine 101 how to play right and i think this is right from that guide that we just saw like the basics you know investigative abilities you have one rank to more and to find leads and gather clues. So again, you already know. And th- this is really cool because it's got like a how to play, but it references the longer descriptions in the book. I-, I think that that's a really cool, that's a really cool design. Spend investigative ability pool points to get powerful effects. So you're really only using your points that you spend when something bigger is happening than just handling a certain situation. Political allegiances, you can give you information and lend a hand. General abilities to take actions, roll a D6 before the roll. So you can, and you can spend points to try to match or exceed the difficulty number, usually four, that's cool. Spending corruption lets you pass powerful spells to inflict exceptional damage, but corrupts either your body or your friend's morale and the world around you. That's interesting. I think they have a house rule for how not to do that. If you don't like the idea of spell corruption, there, are house, there apparently is a house rule to deal with that. If you spend enough wealth at the start of the game, you may have high repute and can use you can use to buy your way out of trouble. If you didn't, your low repute might cause you trouble. Then it's got to attack. How do, how do you do attack? You have your warfare abilities, sway or sorcery, defending, how to inflict damage. And then you have your character sheet. And you can see like these are sort of the ranks. All the little dots are sort of the ranks that you have in a particular ability and 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 expending those in order to in order to do the things that you want. So very straightforward. Looks like they have two. What is best in life? I love it. So very straightforward character sheet, right? Really, really, you know, it looks complicated, but it really isn't. And it's all based on sort of those different skills, the general abilities that you have and your your investigative abilities. You can see this is something where like you, you look at it and from the character sheet, you can kind of tell the style of game that it's going to have. This is something that really became clear to me playing a bunch of different RPGs, playing like Call of Cthulhu, that when you look at the character sheet, the character sheet tells you what the game is going to be like. And this is that really good example. When you know that you have a liar's tell or taunting, laws and traditions, city secrets, skullduggery, leechcraft, spot frailty, you can tell, ah, okay, I'm getting a feeling for what this game is, this game is going to be like. So there's your other there's your other character sheet and a sorcery quick quick reference page. This is kind of cool. Enemies, grudges, repute, quick reference and appendices, more appendices. So I am really eager. I, I hope to try this out. Do I know if I'll run it? I don't know. I might, I, you know, if the circumstances come out, whoops, I moved too quickly. There we go. If the circumstances arise for me to try running a game like this for like a one shot, I would definitely do it. I liked it. I liked it enough and I knew enough 
about Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner as creators for this game. Again, having played games with Kevin Culp, having played gumshoe games before, played a lot of gumshoe games. My wife has played a lot of gumshoe games. I know we like those styles of games a lot. And I was eager to see, like, how does this work in a high fantasy environment? That could be really neat. So as soon as I found out it was available, I picked up the physical version and the PDF version and have the PDF version in hand, getting the physical version soon. So I would definitely play this again. And I would definitely play it. I'm going to definitely play gumshoe systems again. I really like gumshoe systems a lot. So if you are, if this sounds interesting to you, you can check out that quick start guide. You can find a link in the show notes to the eight page quick start guide. You can also find a link to pick it up at the Pelgrane store itself. You can pick up the physical book against a 400 page source book plus the PDF for $60 plus shipping and looks, looks really good. So I'm, I'm very excited for that. So that is Sword of the Serpentine by Pelgrane Press. For today's main topic, I wanted to talk about something that I've been doing in role-playing games recently and games that I've been running, but also something that I think many GMs find themselves in the situation of running this particular scenario. And it is one that requires a fair a fair bit of, of deep thought, and that is running cities. Running cities is a particularly difficult challenge in fantasy role-playing games and role-playing games in general. And the reason why that running cities is hard is that there are so many variables that there's so many different places you can go. There's usually not anything in the way of you making those choices. It's not like a dungeon where there's only so many paths. There's only so many nodes. There's only so many ways to go there. Or even if you think about like traveling in the overlands, there's really only so many paths that you're going to take in the overlands. There's not really sure you could take, you know, an infinite number of paths through the woods, but really there's only going to be like two or three. And as a GM, you could say like, well, you can follow the stream, which is a little bit wild, but probably not so bad. You could go directly through the forest just looking for game trails and stuff which is definitely wild or you could take the old road and which is more well known you'll you'll be observed and spotted and there's bandits there but you might be able to take that you can still offer these sort of branches of choices in overland that still are limited in in how they go many times it's just one path you're like yeah you're going to go on the main road that's that's going to be it but cities can go anywhere and you, the characters can go anywhere. They can split up and go in multiple directions. There's so many things to do. There's so many options available that when you run a city, it can be paralyzing both for GMs who are running it and for the players who are deciding where to go. Unfortunately, right now, I don't have any outstanding, simple, straightforward, lazy GM advice that says, this is how you should run a city. And if you run it this way, it's going to be super easy and you're ready to go. I don't have advice like that. I have a lot of thoughts. I have a lot of ideas. I have things that I've been working with that have made it better, but nothing that I have found have made it just easy to run a city. One of the things that I've been hanging on to a lot, which I think you can do in pretty much all aspects of your game, it's the reason why it is step one of the eight steps of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master is focusing on the characters. Think about the characters. Look at the characters. Understand what they want. Think about what their players want. Think about what the background of those characters are like. Think about what the character arcs are. What kind of things are they trying to accomplish? There's lots of ways to ask this. You can ask it during your session zero. You can use like campfire tales where you ask the players to describe what their characters are thinking about, about the future or the past. You can just ask players directly with something like stars and wishes. What are the things that you'd like to see happen in the game? What are the things that you've really enjoyed that have been happening in the game? And you can write all that stuff down and you can use that to flesh out your whole game. You can use it to flesh out specific adventures. You can think about your bigger campaign. You can think about all of that, but you can also use that to help design how you're going to approach a city. And the idea is when you're sitting down and you say, okay, the characters are about to enter a city. Maybe it's like Waterdeep. We could go with like a really big city like Waterdeep or a really big city like Sharn or maybe a smaller to medium-sized city like Zobek from, from, from Midgard or maybe even a smaller city like Dulwich from Shadow, Shadowed Keep of the Borderlands. And 
you look at these and you say, okay, well, you know, you're not going to say like, well, let me tell you about Waterdeep. It's got 12 districts. It's got a million and a half people. There's docks and there's rich people and there's all this stuff. You probably don't want to like describe the whole thing. Instead, you want to make a reason like, why are they at the city? What are they hoping to do there? What are the plots that are driving in there? But then also when you look at the characters, where do you think the characters are going to want to go? What are the things you think each character is going to want to do? And if you sit down when you're doing your game prep and you know, you're either going to be going to a city or you're in a city you can list all your characters out and look at each one and say what place do i think this character is going to go my wizard is going to want to go to a wizard school because they want to research new spells or they want to go to an old sage and they want to learn more information about magic but they want to research spells my cleric or my paladin they're going to want to go find their temples they're going to want to go talk to people about you know whatever the the the, the big threats are of the world they're going to want to go maybe they have an old mentor in town you know what are the specific places that they want to go your rogue is going to find like the shady areas maybe go in the back alleys talking to people maybe if they have like an old thieves guild there that they know about and again that could be a secret and clue is that your secret clue is that there's a thieves guild that the rogue knows about you know you can go down your list of characters your barbarian you know wants to go i mean what what's like a good place for the barbarians to go maybe there's like an old veterans hangout that the barbarian knows about or maybe that like it's actually outside of the city is where the barbarian enclave hangs out or maybe there's like an area where they do contests and feats of strength that he might be interested in or a warrior's guild you know fighters and barbarians might go to a warrior's guild think about each of the characters think about what they want and think about what kind of place you can highlight in the city that they're going to want to go to the nice thing about that is you're aiming it directly at a character so if you even mention that there's a place like that they're probably going to say oh yeah i want to go there because they know they're in their character they know where they want to go and you're not just thinking about it from like what classes they would have you're thinking about from like the drive of the character themselves and the interest of the players you know you might have a player who's just always interested in learning what magic items are available for sale so say oh yeah there's a shady magic item vendor he always has three items for sale but it's never the same three items and they're always like sold to you, but it's always at a weird cost, right? So you can drop that in and say, okay, here's this one NPC that the characters know about that they can go and they can learn about what magic items are available and you can figure that out. And you can spend a little time prepping that out because you know that one player is going to want to go see what magic items are available. So th- that's probably my biggest tip is build the city and focus the city and focus your attention on the city around the characters and the things that they're going to want to do. But then there's also another part about it, which is uh, focusing it around the adventures that they're going on. What are the stories that are happening? What are the drives that are bringing them there? What options do they have? If you, if you have a limited number of like quests that they're going on that are in that city, then you don't really have to worry that they're going to do a lot of other things because those quests are going on. If you don't have quests, you want to drop quests in front of them, right? Have a have a you know a distraught man run up to them and say, "My my son, my idiot adventuring son, grabbed his sword and went down into the sewers." You look like adventurers. Could you please go down into the sewers and help my son? Now, granted, you're going to go straight from a city down into a dungeon, but you could drop stuff like that in there. You could have somebody, you have two people talking about, hey, have you heard about it? Yeah, I heard another kid got lost in the sewers the other day. And you're dropping a little adventuring seed in front of them. You know, you could have these and drop like three interesting adventuring seeds. So that way you are helping to steer their direction in specific areas that you can then worry about and prep. Instead of saying like, here's this great big city, where do you want to go? Which is the kiss of death for running a city. If you say you enter the water deep you look around and realize like here's a city of a million people 12 districts 
everybody from like super rich people up on the hill to the docks down below, you know, all the, where do you want to go? Oh my God. Right. Like they don't know and you don't know, and they're going to come up with something and you won't have any idea what you want to do there. So that is really the, you know, avoid that, right? You want to have clear drive, clear direction, clear motivation, clear reasons why they're going to the city, clear, not railroading. You're not saying there's only one path. You're just going straight to the Duke and you're asking for that gold that you got for killing the wyvern at Outback. You, you don't want to have just one path, but you don't want to offer like an infinite number of paths. You want like three to five. Again, that option of like, you know, having one option available per character is probably enough. And even that's going to be, be a lot, but dropping like, what are the main hooks that are driving, that are driving you into the city and focusing on those hooks can be, can be a really, a really good, you know, a really good angle. Keep those choices, keep those choices limited. Now, a lot of times you're going to be running downtime in these cities. A lot of the reasons why you go to these cities is that they can spend a little time there. It's safe. They can actually take a long rest without, you know, getting accosted by giant rats, most likely, depending on the bar that they pick. And you, so they're, they're going to want to do stuff. And you, some of those stuff might take longer than like a day. So this is your opportunity to do downtime. Now, the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Player's Handbook both have downtime activities. Xanathar's Guide also has downtime activities for like your D&D 5e games. Other books have other downtime activities. Level Up Advanced 5e has their downtime activities. It's good to take a look at those to get an idea of the kind of things that you can that you can do. But one of the things you can do is customize your downtime activities for the characters. Again, if you get anything from this, you're going to get this one message. Focus on the characters, right? And you can focus on the characters. Probably might be, you know, one of the biggest, most important things you can do in any RPGs. Focus on the characters. They're the focal point. They're what you're doing. What are they doing? Be fans of them. Design your adventures around what they're doing. It's important for spiral campaign development. It's step one from the Lazy DM Tips. And we're talking about it here. And when you're designing your downtime, so when you're thinking about downtime and you think about the things that they might want to do, think about the things that characters might want to do specifically. So instead of saying like, oh, you have all of these different options of things you want to do, say like, well, which characters, the bard is probably going to want to do some carousing. So you can kind of customize the carousing one around the bard and what they want to do. Again, if you have somebody that's really interested in scribing magic or understanding spells or learning about ancient lore or, or uncovering secrets of artifacts that they'd already picked up, you could have sort of your whole like magical archaeology downtime activity again reconnecting with the clergy reconnecting with priests of your god relearning about like how how you know we've been chasing this threat but we've been out in the field all this time how does the how does how do the gods feel about this threat like that could be a particular downtime activity so look at each of the characters and custom build your downtime activities and your options for downtime activities around those characters so that they are tailor-made for them and that way there's not a million different options there's really only a set of options but those options are things they're really going to be want to want to be interested in they're, they're really going to be interested in them if you really think about this you know taking those base ideas as templates right the downtime activities you find from other books you can use as templates but then you can tailor them around things you know that the characters can want to do i think that that i have done that i found it to be a pretty valuable idea Another one is like, you know, your strong starts, right? Step two from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master is run a strong start. When you're just starting off your session, have something happen, right? Have an event that occurs and use that event to drive them towards your adventure. I'll bring up an example that I used from my game just last night. They're in the town of Dulwich. Dulwich is a pretty good sized town. This is from Shadowed Keep on the Borderlands. The town of Dulwich is a pretty big town. And I knew that I had an idea about where I wanted the adventure to go. I was a little risky because they're starting in a town, which means 
means I could have players who say, oh, actually, I'd like to go do this thing. And I did a little bit. I had one player who's like, hey, I'd like to go to that temple again and just ask the, the, the woman that runs the temple about this thing or the big cathedral. I want to ask her about this thing. But it was okay because one of the things I did is I could have done any sort of random strong start. I could have had a couple, like the last session, I had a couple of thugs that were bugging a potion vendor. And that while the characters walking by, they saw these thugs that were extorting money from the potion vendor. It was just a nice situation for them to get a feeling for the town. And it had an intention, which was to introduce the characters to the gangs that operate inside Dulwich through a specific instance. That worked really well. If I did that again, though, now I'm going to draw the characters away from the story that I actually wanted to head towards, which is the story they said they wanted to head towards last session but it's been a couple weeks it's been a while since we played so they might not remember so instead my strong start was that one of the characters had a vision and a nightmare about a terrible ritual occurring on this hill where an obelisk grew out of the ground and and killed a sacrifice while it grew out of the ground and they and and then when the character came to subconsciously they had drawn a map to where that obelisk was and all the other characters kind of saw what happened and said, oh, my God, like in your sleep, you drew a map to a place. We should probably go there and see what happened. And then there was some investigation. Did that already occur? Is this something we could stop? You know, what happened? And they did some more thought. But right away, the strong start, even though they're in this big town with all these options, the strong starts told them what to do, gave them the impression, gave them direction, gave them the thing showed the drew, drew the characters in because one of the characters is the one who had this vision they still got to do all this other investigation but they knew the 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 event of the strong start shoved them in that direction that they went and again was i railroading then yes only because they selected that option last game last game they said oh we want to investigate those creepy monoliths okay you want to investigate the creepy monoliths i'm holding you to it and i'm going to hammer that point down in the strong start. So even though they're in the city with so many things to do, there was a specific strong start that guided them down the direction that the adventure that we wanted the adventure to go, that they wanted the adventure to go because they wanted to, they, they selected it. So in the same way, we can drop adventure hooks in front of the characters right away that while they're going around the city, instead of just having them wander aimlessly, if we have certain ideas about where we want the characters to go, they, we can drop those hooks in. You don't want a lot of them. You don't want six hooks. You want like three. You know, if you don't know where the adventure is going to go, you want like three. If you know where the adventure is going to go, get rid of the other ones and focus on that one. Like I did last night. I knew they wanted to go after the monoliths. They said they wanted to go after the monoliths. They mentioned it to me in the previous session. I double checked with them between the game. Hey, everybody, just to remember, you guys said you wanted to head out and investigate the monoliths, right? And they said, yeah, that's what we want. And I'm like, monoliths it is. And we focus on it. I even had players who were like joking, like, oh, we changed our mind. We don't want to go to the monoliths. They were just, they knew, right? They knew I was asking. I'm like, well, I just spent an hour prepping the, your whole exploration of monoliths and that's where we're going, right? So am I railroading them now? Yes, but they chose it. Same way, drop adventure hooks that are areas you actually want the characters to go. Three is always a good option. Three different ways. Oh, do you want to go in the sewers because you heard people are disappearing in the sewers? That's an adventuring hook. Do you want to go meet the gang that threatened you, actually invited you to come meet with them? Do you want to go meet the gang member and learn what you know? Learn what they have to say? Like face off against the gang folk who said, hey, come to the Golden Skull and we'll, we'll meet you here. We'll, we, have a, we have an offer for you. Well, that's interesting. Or do you want to investigate why people are being animated from the dead in the cemetery outside of the church, right? So you offer these adventuring hooks right away. And even though the city's really big with four, you know, in the case of Dulwich, it's like 16 locations. In the case of Waterdeep, I think it's like a thousand. 
right? But you could still say when you're in a city like Waterdeep, there's still only certain ways you want to go. You can meet, Blackstaff wants to meet you. She, very rarely does Blackstaff meet with anybody, but she offered an invitation to you saying that she wanted to talk to you about this recent event that's occurred. Plus this other thing has happened and this other thing has happened. And you can have them in different parts of the city. You can describe what's going on as they're, as they're going through those parts of the city, but you want to have those adventuring hooks. So, so that, that really, that really works. A very common, a very common solution to the mega city, which is like your Sharn and your Waterdeep are like examples of like mega cities, cities that are really big is they break them up into districts and it's can be good. If you, if you have control over your adventure, you can make sure that the adventures that you're running are contained to one or two districts that you don't have to explain every district in all of Sharn or all of Waterdeep in order to run a single adventure. Instead, you say, no, it's actually going to be local, in which case you're shrinking it down to just sort of a local location. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't because you're still going to be crossing over from one district. It really makes sense that an adventure is taking place in another district, but you can still kind of say, okay, well, now we're still focusing on two. And you might mention like you traveled through these two other districts in order to get to these two. But as far as those districts are concerned, you only really need to describe those particular, those particular districts. So that can work. And something else you can do is like have a notable landmark in each district to kind of remind them what this district is like. You know, what is it about the docks that makes it really interesting and and, and really grabs your attention? What is it about like the, the upper rich people's places? What What is the fountain that they have that makes that place look so unique? Think about like what interesting monument each of the districts has to help reinforce in the minds of the players which district they're in. And like, oh yeah, that was the one that had the giant hand. You know, I'm pulling it from right, my own book from, from Fantastic Locations. Oh, is this the town that's got the giant hand sticking out of it? Or is this the one where the the statue had collapsed and is now sitting upon a building and there's still people living in those buildings even though it's been it's now the chair of this giant statue you know those monuments can those monuments can really help but focusing on those districts can can really work now a tricky bit and again this just gets to the point that like again point number one cities are hard cities are hard there's really no great answer in my opinion to make running cities really straightforward and easy absorb as much of the city as you can take the time read about it if you're going to be running a significant amount of your adventures in a city like zobek in midgard pick up the zobek guide and go read it and go understand the history of the city and understand the districts that are there and understand the people there you don't have to memorize all of it but it just the more of it you put into your mind the more notes you kind of jot down the more adventure ideas you get from the hooks the easier it's going to be for you to run that city same with like Waterdeep. same with sharn you know and it's interesting like this is the kind of research you know, reading, reading our source material is a good lazy DM technique. It's not easy, but we get a lot of value from it for the time that we spend. If you're going to be running an adventure in Sharn, I ran a, I ran a first to seventh level, half of a campaign about first to seventh level in Sharn. It helped me considerably to learn more about Sharn. I know I didn't get it all right. I know I didn't show off every part of the city, but I was able to make Sharn alive enough and, and make it different enough that the players recognized it, the players enjoyed it and things, and things, things worked out well. So this is, is one of those areas where you're just going to have to do a little bit of homework. And if you're running a big city, you're going to want to read about that big city. You're going to want to understand that big city about as much as you can. That doesn't mean finding every single book that's ever been written about Waterdeep, right? There's like, I don't know how many source books have been written about Waterdeep over the years, but it's a lot. But Waterdeep Dragon Heists, like that adventure alone has a good gazetteer about Waterdeep. Read the gazetteer. The gazetteer is probably enough to, to work to work out. The same with like Baldur's Gate. There's a gazetteer for Baldur's Gate and in Descent into Avernus. If you're running Baldur's Gate and you read that 
that that part of it that can work really well. Sharn inside of Eberron Rising from the Last War, right? You know, and, and an excellent guide to Sharn. You can read that. Again, Cobalt Press has the Zobek source book. You can read all about Zobek from that book. The books like the Southlands that Midgard that Cobalt Press has published. The Southlands has m- multiple cities. It's worth like, hey, per Bastet, the City of Cats. If we're going to spend time in the City of Cats, spend the time to read about the City of Cats. Get enough details that you can really make it feel alive. You make it really alive for your characters. So there's lots of good uh, different guides uh, for cities. There's actually Cobalt Press put out a guide called Cities and Towns. I'll link to that. Gives you an idea about that's mostly for you to build your own city more so than how to run published cities that exist. But there's also lots of published cities. Zobek, the, the guide to Zobek is really, really good. But one of the accessories that for years, in my opinion, has been one of the best accessories for running cities is Waterdeep City Encounters. This is a DMs Guild product. It was Will Doyle kind of put it together, but a whole bunch of luminaries, a whole bunch of excellent designers in the TTRPG and the 5e D&D space wrote this book. It's available on the DMs Guild. You can get the PDF and softcover for $15 and it is definitely worthwhile. And one of the things that that book is piled with is city encounters. When the characters are going from place to place, you can roll on this list and you get these really fun one or two sentence descriptions of something that happens in the city. Other city source books have things like this too, but this book alone, because it's got so many different ones, is a really, really valuable, really valuable aid. Something I really, really like. City Encounters is excellent. You can, and it's built for Waterdeep, but you can definitely use these same encounters in your other, your other games. You might have to tailor one or two of them that have sort of Waterdeep focused things in them, but generally speaking, these city encounters can be dropped into any of your, any of your games. It's a really, really excellent product for a really good price. It's an adamantine bestseller. It's like, which is their best-selling category on DriveThruRPG and the DMs Guild. Again, 15 bucks for the PDF and soft cover. Really, really worth it. I used it when I was running Waterdeep Dragon Heist. I loved it. I, I had the copy that was just beat to hell. It was all scraped up because I took it to the game shop with me and I would like, you know, mangle it up when I'm looking for encounters. And I just, I, I love it. It's a, it's a fantastic book. So you're going to want to check that one out. So that is really all I currently have to say about cities. It is an evolving topic. I'm sure that I will come up with new ways. Maybe people have better tools. If you have tips and tricks that you have found for running cities where you're like, everyone else is an idiot for not doing it this way because this is a really, really straightforward and easy way to run a city that it makes it like really fits the lazy DM style of high value prep activities, like the kind of prep activities that you can do that offer really high value. That's really, please tell me, send me an email, put a comment, whatever you need to do, reach out to me, come to the Discord server, the SlideFlourish Discord server on, for, for patrons and talk about what you have found to be good ways to run cities. Let's look at some Patreon questions. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, we put up a monthly Q&A. Patrons can ask one question a month, RPG-related question. I answer all of the questions directly there on Patreon. On Patreon, Some of them I move over to talk about here on this show. Some of them even become articles or videos on their own. There was a question last time that I want to do another take on because I didn't really understand what was being asked for. Rigoberto V says, there's a lot of advice and homebrew out there for running low fantasy grim type games. I've been wondering about swinging in the other direction, what swinging in the other direction might look like. What if we want a cozier D&D? I know there are games that aim for that, but what could you do to try to elicit that in a 5e campaign? I took this to mean more heroic than dark, which is, you know, my own brain sort of goes in direction. Sometimes I read a question and my brain goes, boom, it goes into a certain thing. And I, and a lot of people came back and said, you, you know, we really, cozier wasn't high power. Cozier is just relaxed. 
And I was like, oh, okay. So I'm taking another cut at the answer to this to this question of what, what it might look like. And I think there's a couple of dirty tricks that we can do to make a game feel cozier. Probably number one is give them a home base really early and let them customize that home base. In in Light of Zaraxxus, the adventure for Spelljammer, I let them, I let all of the players describe their cabin on the ship. So they each had their own cabin. They could each decide how they decorated it and what it was like, and it really supported. And that was definitely like a cozier technique. It was a way for them to customize the world around, even though the world around them was just that little area, it was a way for them to customize what was there. Another way is to, to put encounters in place that are situations that the characters can navigate that aren't about villains. So just problems, misconceptions, problems that are going on in the world, kind of you know cute situations that the characters have to get involved in where their skills and stuff can help. That's a way to kind of make things cozier. You know, instead of having anything being super grim, dark villains, you can instead kind of, you know, have, have people where it's, it's either cultural clashes or misconceptions about things that can just make it kind of interesting and fun. An example of one of an encounter like this that I ran in my Empire of the Ghouls game is I remember reading, I was reading the, the location description for a town along the path. And it mentioned the fact that this town, people in this town often had the, 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 the belief that the god Rava, who's like the Gearforge goddess, was actually married to the god Volund, who's like the dwarf goddess of the forge. And that that belief was considered heretical in other areas, that the, the, that the Dwarven Cantons in particular thought that that was like a heretical, a, a heretical belief. And so when the players came to that town, they encountered a Dwarven merchant from the Cantons and his, and his, and his guards who were attacking, not like, you know, killing, but like throwing him around, shaking him, a priest of Rava. And the priest you know, they, they were like yelling at him, like, stop saying that. And he's like, why? Just Rava and Balloon love each other. Why would you? And this is, yeah. And and the players are like, what the character is like, what the hell's going on here? And then Dwarf is like, he's saying heretical stuff about Valoon. Valoon is not married to Rava. And that's the terrible thing to say. And he's like, why? They just love each other. He's like, stop it. And right. And so the characters had to get involved. And the characters eventually like had to like really threaten the dwarves. And like, you're not going to assault, you know, you're not going to assault this poor priest. You know, people are allowed to believe what they want to believe. You get the hell out of here. And the dwarf is like, oh, you'll, I'll get you. And he kind of wandered off. And then the guy's like, you know, and all the dude would do is keep talking about how Rava and Valund, it was like his version of slash fiction, right? That he was always talking about Rava and Valund and how much they loved each other. And, you know, the beloved relationship between Rava and Valund. And like, you know, we just saved you from getting your ass kicked by a bunch of dudes because you said this stuff. We don't even care. And he's like, oh, but isn't it wonderful? And, and so the fun but was like, by the end of it, they were like ready to beat the guy up because like, just shut up about this stuff already. So that's an example of like a fun encounter. It wasn't super violent. It didn't have like a real bad guy. It was a circumstance. It was funny. You know, the, the way it kind of evolved was funny. It was a, it's a thing that we still mentioned. They're like far away from there now. But they're like, oh, you remember that priest talking about Ravan Valund? So <clears throat> when you're thinking about like a cozy D&D game, encounters like that, that are kind of fun situations to learn about things, lighthearted ways to look at them, that that can be a really good time. There's a trick with running a cozy or D&D game though. And that's you still want the pacing to move forward. And you can run it like... You can vacillate between like cozy and then dark and then cozy and dark. So you could have evil cultists committing sacrifices to a blood moon and zombies coming out of the earth and then go back to like funny stuff, right? And 
but the pacing still matters. So you don't want cozy to be languid, like, oh, you guys do whatever you want to do in town, right? Like, no, you really still need to focus and still need to move the game forward because cozy can very quickly turn into boring and you don't want cozy to turn into boring. So that's, you know, pacing is still something that you want to pay attention to. So Rigo Berto, I hope that better answered the question from last time. I'm glad I got feedback that said, ah, give that one another go. And I did. Justin C says, I've run several campaigns in the past few years and every campaign has come to an end at the second tier, fifth to eighth level. No matter how I level up the characters, milestone points, I even had all spellcaster party that leveled up every time they encountered or how much time we take or whether the conclusion is epic or regional in scale, it just seems to me that we hit an end. Both me and my players are looking to push past this. What am I doing wrong? Any suggestions for developing the muscles of both me and my players to get into high level play? So this is, I think this is the kind of question that I thought that Rigoberto was asking, which is understanding how the story needs to change to move people to new high level. So there's a couple, there's a couple things in here. And I think when I answered this on the Patreon, my, my thought was like, well, level them every level or level them every other, every other adventure, level them up. And so you're just pushing harder to get to higher levels. But I don't think that that was exactly the issue. It wasn't so much a matter of how to get them to hit those levels as how to evolve the story to hit those levels. And I think that evolving, you, you want to understand what the tiers do and you want to understand how the story needs to evolve from that local threat to regional threat to world threat to multiverse threat, which is really what like the four tiers are, right? Tier one to four, levels one to four is a local threat. Zombies are coming out of the nearby cemetery and harassing the travelers that are trying to go through. Go deal with the zombies. Then the regional threat is like, hey, there's, you know, more, you know, local, a lot of villages are getting attacked by a lot of undead. There's many, many undead that are coming out of many different places. The regional threat, and you want to be thinking about the regional threat while you're in the middle of the local threat like what's the real risk here right what's going on then that global threat once they hit tier three they're 11th level they can teleport from city to city now is when you have like oh hey the githyanki have shown up and they're about to blow up the entire planet because mind flayers are here and they want to they, they want to you know completely destroy all the mind flayers but they're willing to destroy everybody else in the process now you have a global threat and then you have that universe threat of like hey the mind flayers are secretly taking over world after world after world the empire the mind flayers is growing and now you need to go to these worlds you need to go find their the elder the eldest brain and destroy it you want to get to that global threat so thinking about those ranges of threats and how they go up from tier to tier and they escalate they're almost like a power of 10 right? That each, each threat is 10 times bigger than the threat previously until you get to those universal threats. Those, you know, the, the, you know, Orcus is creating, Orcus is about to release a weapon from the dawn age that is going to destroy the entire multiverse with the expectation you're going to stop that so that he can actually go assassinate the God of death and become the new God of death. Like that was my tier four adventure when I ran my fourth edition uh, Orcus game. So, you know, Think about those tiers and that what's going on and think about what that threat is and always be kind of thinking about the next tier and how your current adventures are leading to that 10 times escalation in, in, in threat. So Justin, I hope that I hope that answers your question. Daniel C says last session was my session zero for an AD&D game. There are two players in a DM. My fellow player rolled a magic user and was getting rather frustrated with the fact that he will only have one spell slot and then be useless. He also took all combat spells. How can I, not as the DM, but a player, help him to realize the potential for a character outside of max DPS. I tried to show him how powerful something like Charm Person is in AD&D, but he didn't bite. Maybe AD&D just isn't enough for a power fantasy for the group. So 
this is where it's really important, I think, to understand the massive shift that happened with D&D between second and third edition. I think I've talked about this before. But, you know, OD&D, the white box, the red box, you know, everything, first, you know, first, level, first edition of AD&D, second edition of AD&D was really a low you know, low fantasy game. You could be killed by lots of stuff. Magic users had one spell, you know, that, and when, when you burned it out, you're back to throwing darts and whacking with a, a quarter staff. And then third edition, it switched to high fantasy. Your first level, the first time you had cantrips, the first time you had spells you could always cast. The first time where like you generally had more hit points than like a monster could do in one attack at first level. You started to see this power curve and that really changed how D&D went. From the time when TSR ran D&D to the time that Wizards of the Coast ran D&D, there was this big shift. Now it actually happened partway through TSR and that's when they started doing things like the complete books, the complete fighter, the complete cleric, complete mage. Those books added a lot of new functions and features to characters that made them more heroic and less kind of you know straightforward farmer with a stick kind of guy different players like different styles and it sounds like the player that's rolling the magic user is used to the heroic fantasy of third fourth fifth edition pathfinder and the other the other games a lot of other people like that old school feel that the pre-complete books had with od and first second edition and that's why we see popularity of games like Shadow Dark RPG, Old School Essentials, Nave, and these other old school, you know, what they call the old school revival games, the games that are trying to remember what it was like back then. But there are just players and DMs who aren't really big fans. I don't know that I'm a big fan. I haven't really played any old school Essentials or old school Renaissance kind of games. I want to, and I plan to, and then we'll see. But I'm not sure if that's the kind of game I really like. I kind of like the high fantasy games. I like ease and simplicity and straightforwardness but i don't know that the idea of that characters are dying every time they trip over a rock is exactly the kind of game i want to play so and it doesn't sound like the player that's in that game is there so it feels like the way that 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 interaction should really have occurred is that all the group together described what style of game this is this is what i'm going to do if i run shadow dark i'm going to explain this before we even start because i might even do like a session negative one where i say hey we're talking about what we want to do i'd like to try this out for a session or two but let me tell you about it because it's going to be very different than what we're used to and they might say that really isn't what i'm digging and you say okay then let's try something else like your group might just not dig it they might only dig it for a session or two and they say yeah i just want i want to go back to characters where i feel like i can do lots of stuff so it's really a different style of of game now you might also tell the player to use the sleep spell because sleep was super op in old school in old school games but really what it sounds like is a mismatch between what the player wants out of an rpg and their time spent on rpg and what the dm wants to spend their time in the rpg and that i don't know that that will get better right and it, everybody is spending the same amount of time i mean the gm is spending more time because they prep but like when somebody sits down for a three or four hour game they want that three or four hour game to be fun and if they're not having a good time they're not having a good time so it's not blame and it's not them not understanding how the system works it's a it feels to me like a mismatch in their expectations for a high fantasy game compared to like a grim dark fantasy game nate w says i frequently find myself chafing chafing against one of the lazy dm steps create fantastic locations i'm wondering if you have any particular high level thoughts on ensuring there are consistently fantasy locations fantastic locations for the party to encounter if you have a session in Fandolin, for example what is the fantastic about that it's a frontier town with 
with as provided pretty boring things going on aside bandit problems. Obviously, you want to make it exciting, but beyond weird creatures showing up for fun, for fun stuff to interact with, it still ends up feeling like a, mon a mundane location with fantastic stuff simply being there coincidentally. Advice is appreciated as always to your process. Sure. So I, I talk about this as Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. You can find a whole chapter about r building fantastic locations. Lazy DM's companion hat and, and the Lazy DM workbook have tables to help you generate fantastic locations. And to me, like a fantastic location can be a couple of things. It could be a bigger location like a town. And then you still ask, what is the one really interesting fantasy notable feature of this town? In the town of White Sparrow in my book at Fantastic Adventures, I had a giant hand that was reaching out of the ground and it was so big that they built a bar underneath it. So it was always in the shadow of the hand and they could hang like, you know, they had like hanging things from the fingers and people that would go up top. But there was definitely like, there's a thing there that you go, oh yeah, this is the city with the giant hand. And lots of people were like, what was that about? What's the giant hand? And you want to have something cool like that. So for each location, even if it's a location that's published and if you read it and like, well, there's nothing exciting here, put something exciting there. Put like the crumbled statue of a hero that is there in the center of town. Nobody remembers who the hero was and it was actually melted. It was stone that was melted by dragon fire a thousand years ago. We don't know why, right? What is the one feature of this location that's sort of awe-inspiring? And use generators to help you. You can use the tables from the Lazy DM's Companion or the Lazy DM's Workbook. If you're a patron, you have access to the Lazy GM Random Generator. That one has a, a monument location, a monument generator. You can generate a monument. Get some ideas for it. Have them think about, think about what one thing makes this place fantastic. And that can be at a big level, like a city. What's the one thing about the city? Like, again, you sort of, you, know, you think about like all the cities of Game of Thrones have like a thing that go, oh, that's, you know, Casterly Rock, that's the one that's built out of an entire mountain, or that's the one that's got the huge statue of the guy with the swords out front and you and with where the water goes in through, or that's the one that's got the great big wall, right? Everything has like a big feature that makes you go, oh yeah, that's the city that has X. What's that feature? So that's for cities, but even down to like rooms, you can still say, what's the one fantastic thing about this room? Not every room needs to have like a crazy fantastic feature, but you might say like there is an altar in the corner with like a skull, a humanoid skull, but somebody has, you know, affixed goat horns to the skull and covered it with a handprint of blood. What is the one feature that makes this thing fantastic that makes you go oh wow that's that's some weird that's weird shit right over there what is that feature so getting your mind into this idea of generating those features and, and a trick that i do is even if i don't have a list in front of me come up with 10 if it's hard to do one do 10 and the reason why is you will just hammer through them and you you know you, you, it takes your brain to click a little bit and you're like giant hand the the you know the trunk like legs of a statue that's been shattered a huge dragon skull the a giant rib cage you know, just come up, you know, a, a big statue of a serpent that nobody remembers the origin of a shattered ziggurat, a bloody altar. You know what? Just come up with 10. Think about them, you know, come up, come up with a list of 10. And usually one of those are going to be good. It's a good brain exercise. This come up with 10 ideas and come up with 10 fantastic features to particular locations is a really good, really good way to kind of make your mind nimble for coming up with this sort of thing. And if you need a primer, random generators are a great way to get your brain going on that. Nate, I hope that helps.
Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about our things RPGs. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you did and you want more stuff like this, please subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. Doing so is absolutely free. You will get a free RPG-related email sent directly to your inbox, plus a free adventure generator PDF. You can also become a patron of Sly Flourish and get access to the monthly Q&A, a dedicated Discord server, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, the City of Arches Sourcebook, a bunch of exclusive adventures, and a whole lot more. And you can pick up any of my books, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, The Lazy DM's Companion, and The Lazy DM's Workbook, all at the Sly Flourish Bookstore. Links to all of that are in the show notes. Thank you so much. Have a great day, and get out there and play an RPG.